You create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their subconscious. How could I ever acquire enough detail to make them think that it's reality? Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. Let me ask you a question. You, you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the, uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? We're dreaming. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 95, Inception, part one. Yes, that's right. And it's a big one. Yeah, honestly, this is probably going to be our most ambitious undertaking. And yes, I am including the three-part true detective series that we did way back when which was pretty ambitious we had a lot to say but yeah people uh desperately trying to forget that (laughs) series but inception obviously there's so much to talk about it's one of the most insane things probably to ever be at that level of mainstream yeah Uh, i mean i think we're talking about a movie that made you know close to 900 million dollars and it's one of the most wrap your mind around that imaginable Yeah, I mean, I feel like I can remember this movie coming out, and we probably talked about it for weeks afterwards. Honestly, it when I was kind of doing some research, uh, you know, obviously we we watched the movie. uh, I watched it a couple of times, uh, took a lot of notes, and but you know, doing some other general research online, it kind of had it kind of had like a big feeling of nostalgia for me, just in the fact that. It's hard to really remember things that captured the, you know, conversations of the day. Like, the zeitgeist was, oh, like, yeah. a buzz with this one topic for, like, such a long period of time. I mean, I get that Star Wars and Avengers, those movies are probably... They make more money than in Inception, and people are big fans of them. But it's just, like, I don't know if there's, like, this kind of in-depth, like thought going on where people are coming up with insane theories and arguing and debating and like finding clues and you know going back and studying it as if it's like some text you know from ancient times it's like yeah it was it was very like a cultural moment and it's like it we don't get like a lot of those right i I mean you kind of think back to when tv was a little bit different and i mean i know it still kind of works this way with hbo's programming but like when Sopranos was on uh, week to week, I just feel like Monday morning 
everyone was a buzz about yeah what which happened. I, we i think we talked about in our sopranos episode right. yeah so for us personally i feel like inception was the closest thing to maybe true blood for <laughs> what dominated our conversations uh yeah th- it definitely was like a, that time period of my life i probably talked about inception more than any other movie and <laughs> was this in uh scott pilgrim <laughs> yeah well and the only one that I can even compare it to as far as like big chunks of my time spent talking about would probably be a few years earlier when I was really getting like deep into like some Donnie Darko oh, yeah. thoughts like theories and stuff. But it kinda sucks now. I feel like I go on year stretches without being into something that much. Yeah. Well, you know, and then once we now, you know, we've re- re- we revisited Donnie Darko already on the podcast, and now we're doing Inception, which we didn't even intend to be a two-part episode until we actually, you know, started getting into Once it. You we're like, holy shit! Get that conversation going again. You're like, okay, this is starting to spiral. Yeah, that's wildly well, that's my control. whole thing. It's like we we did Donnie Darko, and it's like now we're doing Inception. It's it feels like you're you're pulling an old lawnmower out of the garage and trying to get it started again. You know? Yeah, and you're I just say- pulling on that motor over and over and then finally it kicks over and then all of a sudden you're in that inception mode and you're down the rabbit hole of theories and oh yeah discussion points with inception it's like i mean when i saw it in theaters obviously completely blown away saw it multiple times in theaters bought the blu-ray immediately watched it a bunch of times but i did need like a break from it I i hadn't really watched it in quite a while but i was ready to jump back in yeah, I actually watched it probably about a year ago or so, and yeah. it had, it was my first time in a long time, and I was like, holy shit, this movie is good. Right. I I remember we were doing an, our old podcast at the time, Okay, back at the end of 2010, and yeah. we, we did our best of the year lists, and I believe- As we are wont to do. What Did, did you have- uh, The Social Network or Black Swan I as had, number one? Uh, Social Network. And I think our uh, former co-host, Brian Bell. Slash current buddy. Uh, <laughs> I think he had Black Swan and I had Inception. What a year. Yeah, and we've done all three now right. on the podcast. It, it was, was a great time right around that 2009, 2010. Yeah, I, I mean, there was also like uh, probably about 10 other really top quality movies in that year and somehow the king's speech won best picture but i don't want to go down that road again 2010 uh christopher nolan film uh, 160 million dollar budget which seems small (laughs) i don't know i mean i mean for what you see on the screen compared to how much the movies are now yeah he can uh stretch a dollar i mean his movies always look incredible yeah well one of the cool things about this movie is that uh, there's only about 500 CGI uh, effect shots in it, which yeah. for a movie of this magnitude is really low. Well, one of my favorite things about him as a director is he makes really big movies with a uh, minimal amount of CGI. Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to like, I don't know, like the superhero movies and stuff, they have well over 2,000, and this was just at about 500, and you know they wanted him to do it in 3D, and he said no, and it just... You know, really, for that reason alone, stands the test of time as like actually looking great. Do you think are we're we're really winding down on the uh, 3D thing? Yeah, I think so. Not nearly as many releases now. 
Yeah, because I just think people realize that, you know, it doesn't really look great most of the time. Yeah. It's just a stupid money-making thing. Remember 3D TVs were supposed to be a thing for a while? Yeah, that died pretty quick. See ya. All right, so let's get into it. The uh, Hans Zimmer score for this movie is just, like, off the charts. Yeah, he pretty much seemingly does the scores for all the Nolan movies, right? Most of them, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's... it's The music is just, like, so loud. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I do feel like this probably was one of those movies that started that trend of just like the dun, dun, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, it's now, it's never been more effective. Now famous for like the Sicario 2 Saldado or Day of the Saldado trailer, yeah, well, they, whatever that yeah, is. They just, that first trailer for that movie. Every time the trailer comes that. on, it's like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so menacing. Right. Okay, so we get we uh, I think like for the sake of keeping everybody as sane as possible, we're gonna try to keep things as you know straightforward and linear and good luck on the surface for our initial go through. You know, obviously, you know when we say Inception Part One, that means you know we're planning a Part Two. So you know maybe we'll we'll kind of briefly talk about some of the crazy theories and stuff. But I mean, you know, one of the cool things about this movie is that. Uh, Christopher Nolan wanted a movie that is left to your own interpretation. There is it certainly is. I, I I mean, people. I don't lo- think you can make any argument and clearly support it. I I just feel like anything can be brought into question in this movie. Yeah, because you know, one of the things I was seeing a lot is people giving like these definitive like statements, like the take. This is what this is, and this is what this means, and this is the answer. And it's like I no. There is no definitive answer. So the most important thing is to talk about what we actually see and hear and experience on screen. So the film opens up with Leonardo DiCaprio playing uh, Dominic Cobb, who I'm going to refer to as Cobb. Yeah, I mean, Dom Cobb is a weird name. It's not really that fun to say. (laughs) Yeah, I like to say Cobb. Yeah. But, you know, Dom slash Cobb. They mostly call him Cobb. In the movie, right? Yeah, I think uh, Maul calls him Dom. Yeah. But yeah, I prefer Cobb. Cobb awakens on on a beach, you know, kind of in the surf with water kind of around him. Yeah. He's taken by some armed guards into uh, a room. We see some... I think before that, we see some kids playing on the beach. Oh, uh, yeah. We later, Those kids. We'll later learn that are <laughs> Cobb's kids. You know, he gets taken to see an old man... An old Japanese man. I feel who's... like DiCaprio looks kind of weird too in this scene. I feel like they make him look a little bit older or something too. Yeah, it's well, it's kind of unclear. I mean, I guess we can kind of just talk about the whole thing, you know. But I mean, this is kind of like a flash forward before we flash right. back kind of thing, and you know, it's kind of unclear. I guess how long it took him to find Saito. In yeah, there's a lot of limbo. So who knows how old he is? Right. But I do feel like he looks noticeably a little bit different than he does the rest of the movie. I don't fully understand this part, and I think we'll when we when we finally you know in part two of our podcast when we finally <laughs> work our way to back this to the scene, like we can discuss this whole thing. But basically, Saito recognizes the top that they've taken out of uh, Cobb's possessions, and it seems like he kind of remembers Cobb and. There's kind of this allusion to something between them, and then we flash to them 
to younger versions of them. Right. In the same location, which I also don't fully understand. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just supposed to be he recreated that building in Limbo. So the opening portion of the film is basically something called the Cobol job. Cobol is like an energy conglomerate that hired um, some extractors, Cobb and Arthur, and they have an architect named Nash at the time. And their goal, I guess, is to steal some plans for expansion that Saito has come up with for his huge company. I have no idea. That's like yeah. the basic I, idea. I don't really know what Sato's business is. Yeah, that's that yeah, and it's kind of funny too cuz eventually like some of the odd things in this movie kind of get called out by one of the characters in the movie at the sure. very end, but yeah, it, these all seem to be just kind of like generic energy glo- right. like global energy conglomerates that are basically running the world in a certain sense and so Cobol Energy is hired Cobb and Arthur they are now we come in kind of uh mid heist and it seems like they're they're doing the act that they attempt again later the the Mr. Charles or whatever it is where he's letting them know letting the target know that they're dreaming yeah it gets very (laughs) this movie is so insanely complicated and even like the things that should seem somewhat straightforward then get further complicated right. by things that the characters do and introduce at various points. But basically, Cobb and Arthur are extractors. They're performing corporate espionage using experimental military technology to infiltrate the subconscious of their targets and extract valuable information or secrets through a shared dream world. So basically, you t- have a target and then you set up a situation where you're able to enter their dreams and steal information from their mind. That's the basic idea yeah, of what pretty handy these characters are to doing. have. And over the course of the film, not a lot of uh, explanation for the actual technology. You no, just kind of got to buy it. Yeah, That's I fine. mean, it, it's, it's not know, a sci-fi movie. Yeah, sci-fi movies that work best, I think, kind of don't worry too much about the explanation of their, you know, special thing. They're yeah. like. Uh, they're just going to throw Do you into machina it. or whatever. This technology exists, and these guys can use it. Yeah, like, for example, like in Looper, like, there's no explanation as to what this thing is oh, that right. sends people back in time. It's just a thing, and yeah. it works. And then that's it. And then the So there you go. Good. So, Saito is their target. As we said, Cobol Energy won Saito's expansion plans. Um, we kind of cut back and forth between Cobb and Arthur awake at some sort of gala in tuxes and they're in this like giant kind of mansion on the ocean or something. We're not really sure what this place is. It's, it's kind of got interesting Asian architecture and there's a lot of people there and everybody's very dressed up and they're working on a plan to extract Saito's information. And then we're cutting between that and then a room in an apartment with Cobb, Arthur and Saito asleep while a riot seems to be unfolding in the streets outside. You're, you are like, what the hell is going on? So, not even, you, even not knowing what's happening, you have a loose idea of what the movie about. It's about dreams, and you're getting uh, the fact that these dudes are, are, dream, are dreaming. They're sleeping, and we're probably in a dream. But the catch here is obviously where this riot is happening. That's also a part of the dream. But when you're first seeing it, you're like, where would they even be? doing this mission that this, like, riot is going on in the streets. 
Well, yeah, and that's like kind of the cool thing about this movie is that you're kind of just thrown into it, and then over the course of the two hours and 28 minutes, you're basically catching up to speed with yeah. what the fuck is going on. And I think for the minority of people that didn't like the film or you know reviewed the film poorly or something, I, I just think some people never quite caught up. Like they just were confused from the first moment and never quite grasp the twists and turns because you know eventually well they're coming at you quick yeah i mean basically the idea here is that the gala that they're at is a dream within a dream but we don't know that until you know of it's revealed you know it's kind of like this big moment you know later on down the line and the idea i guess is that to assist in a, this extraction process is it, it kind of throws somebody who may be expecting uh, a subconscious attack like for a loop like right. they're not expecting to go two levels yes. into a, a dream within a dream so basically everything at this like gala kind of goes to shit when marion Catard shows up um playing maul who you know obviously we don't really know who this is at first oh right i can remember uh seeing this for the first time and really trying to make sense of what this character is the mall character right and it because it's just so bizarre in this sequence even uh when dom has his interaction with her and he just like sits her in the chair and then ties that rope around it and jumps out the window and then she just gets up yeah you're just like well she's not very helpful right well yeah you you do get like the first hint of their past relationship but you don't know exactly what is going on like you don't know for sure that i mean i guess like because they're you know similar in age and you know he's a man and she's a woman and this is like a movie that like you're like all right well that it probably was like a romantic thing at some point but we don't know who she is okay. or why yep. she's there uh we don't know like what the extent of their relationship is <laughs> that's leonardo dicaprio and that's a smoking hot french chick <laughs> yeah so I mean, I my, can see this working out. My obsession with French women just continues from Belle de Jour right into in- Inception. That's right, <laughs> and probably for the rest of the episodes from here on out for the for the rest of time. Yeah, back in that apartment room is where we see Nash, and he's he's the one who's awake, and he'll later be identified as the architect for this particular mission. Who I guess is like the person who designs the world within where the dream takes place. Yes, uh, known. Off screen as what Lucas Haas? Yeah, interesting. Kind of a random person to be in this. Kind of pops up in a lot of things, but not a star certainly. So eventually, in the, I'm just going to keep referring to it as like the unspecified gala dream. Please. Yeah. Uh, eventually, uh, Maul seems to betray Arthur and Cobb because she kind of is with Sido and they have guns and. This is where we, you know, they kind of take uh, Arthur, who's uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, they kind of take him like hostage for a second, and we learn, you know, they kind of give us the information now that if you die in a dream, you wake up, but pain is in the mind, so Maul shoots him in the knee. So he doesn't yeah. wake up, but he's Maul, actually in pain. truly evil. How dare you? <laughs> but, you know, Cobb grabs a gun and shoots Arthur so that he wakes up, and he's back in the apartment, and then the dream that Cobb is in starts to collapse because I guess that Arthur is the dreamer. This is something I almost don't even want to go down this road because I can't, 
Well, I did when we get to the big mission later. I did specify who I, I made a note of who was the dreamer for each for each level. Scene. because. But yeah, the idea Arthur's the dreamer at this level, but the level above was Lucas Haas's dream. Correct. Okay. Yeah, whoever it's very complicated to me because they never fully explain the idea of what the architect does because when we get to that mission, <laughs> the big mission later. Right. And they recruit an architect, Ellen Page, who plays Ariande. She originally is not going to go on the mission, and that, yeah, I don't that that's like a tur- that, you know that ends up happening because of Cobb's you know mental state with like his whole thing with Maul. But like, so what was she going to? So do? how do they get? How does the architect design a dream and then not be in the dream? I don't know how that works. I don't even really understand how they design the dream. Yeah, I don't. What know. What they actually do. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Is there because at one point it seems like she has drawings, right? <laughs> it's like he's well, like, did what, you they build in the drawing or what? Well, when they're in that like snow level or whatever, he's like, did you build in like a a backup tunnel or something? And she's like, yeah, I did. It's well, like, no, because Eames does. Oh, Eames right. Is the one that had, yeah, because it was his dream in that yes. level. Okay. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Some of the this but that kind of goes into like the science fiction logic where we're at some unspecified time in the future where all of this technology is possible and they do give us tons of exposition and explanation and backstory to explain things but there's also a ton that's like left out and that you just kind of have to roll with. Yeah. That's fine. So the first level of the dream kind of collapses and this is all, you know, we kind of get the introduction of the idea of the quote kick, which is like the thing that wakes up a dreamer from one level into another. They kind of can't get Cobb to wake up, so they push a chair over that he's sleeping in in the apartment in the, you know, in the right. first level. And it's of pretty the cool the way it's shot where he's falling backwards slowly and the water seeping in, and then within the dream world. It kind of comes flooding in, and that world just washes away. Yeah, I mean, obviously, scientifically, pe- people definitely like were nitpicking like how dreams are portrayed in this film, and obviously, I mean, that's just like a really dumb road to go. Yeah, down, that seems like, fun. But I did see that people were like, this particular aspect was done in a way that is totally realistic, and that is how like you perceive. Like, if you're awake and something is happening to you, or if you're, you know, in the waking world, something's happening to you while you're sleeping, it gets processed by the mind and plays out in a different way within the dream. So, like, him getting pushed into the bathtub and the water hitting him is kind of like the water crashing through the world that he's in in the second level of the dream. So, now everyone is eventually awake in that apartment, which Uh, it turns out is like ensues well it turns out it's like uh an apartment saito owns in secret it's kind of like a love nest you know yeah a scuffle ensues they kind of are kind of under they're kind of like using the ruse a lot of faith in his uh mistress or whatever (laughs) she would never and yet we're here yeah uh well yeah they're kind of going with the ruse that like they're actually awake right they're the, the kind of the idea here is that the first level of the dream is almost like an insurance policy where they can kind of strong arm the information out of him because he believes he's awake and that he could be killed. But unfortunately, it is funny at times during this movie where like uh, Cobb and maybe some of these other characters, they they kind of act like there's some sort of, uh, I don't know, level of class to their criminal activities. 
But at times where they just like completely break down and he goes like full on criminal, he's just like, tell me the combination. <laughs> it's always like a fun twist at those points. Yeah. So I think at this point we're kind of like cutting into Cobb, Arthur, Nash and Saito all being asleep in a train. Yep. At some point, and we realize, re- oh, they're still dreaming. Yeah. Saito reveals that he let them into his subconscious as an audition. This is when some unknown kid on the train kind of puts head- headphones on the sleepers. And this is like our first introduction of the Non Gene Regret Rien performed by Edith, Edith Piaf. Piaf? Which oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Will, will kind of be like a recurring song, which I think we'll talk about more later. Maybe we heard this song at the start of the episode. I, well, I don't I was thinking okay. at the end. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it turns out that the carpet in the apartment is not correct, and Saito has his face against it when uh, Cobb is trying to strong-arm the information out of him, and so it reveals to Saito that he's still dreaming, whereas initially he was kind of like, this was an audition for you, and you fucked up, but now he's kind of impressed, but we kind of don't get the full story of that. So... I don't really know like what the deal is with that Asian kid like kind of assisting them on the train. Yeah, who knows? I don't know level. where they hire him. He's just some rando that is they're like, "Hey, we're going to do this weird dream thing. Here's some cash to help us or it's whatever." It's like the kid from uh Temple of Doom. So, everyone basically everything kind of collapses and they don't get the information that they're looking for. Cobb, Arthur and Nash all are awake on the train while Saito is still asleep, but Tensions between Cobb and Arthur kind of bubble up over Maul's appearance in the dream. It seems like they're kind of hinting at maybe Cobb's inability to control the situation like he should be able to. And, you know, the team kind of bails from there with Saito still asleep. So, basically, like, the first 15 minutes of this movie is just this total mindfuck where you're like, what is going on? <laughs> they're throwing a lot at you. Because we start on the beach... And then we see Saito as an old man. Then we cut to them young and we're, you know, we find out this basic premise of like being within a dream to steal information. Then we cut to... Plus you have this weird twist with this whole Maul character. Yeah, Maul shows up. Right we don't out know of who the that gate. is. Then we cut to the apartment, which we think is where they are asleep and they've connected themselves together into this shared dream world. But then we find out, no, it's a dream within a dream and they were actually in this train the whole time. Before we go any further, a dream within a dream is a real thing. Um, Confirmed you may by re- who? Science. Okay. <laughs> uh, you may remember, if you've listened to our Picnic at Hanging Rock episode, I think our opening clip is the dream within a dream line. It's But who is the dreamer? Yeah, very prevalent through Twin Peaks dream stuff. You know, the whole idea of a dream within a dream is definitely like a fantastical thing to run with for like fiction and science fiction and and all kinds of like thought and you know whatnot but basically a dream within a dream is like a false awakening a false awakening is a vivid and convincing dream about awakening from sleep while the dreamer in reality continues to sleep after a false awakening subject subjects often dream they're performing daily morning rituals such as showering cooking cleaning eating and using the toilet False awakenings mainly... That's some dream. <laughs> mainly those in which one dreams that they have awake awoken from a sleep that featured dreams take on aspects of a double dream or a dream within a dream. 
I guess so I've had a dream within a dream. You've never had that. Ha- I think I've ha- probably had it like once or twice. Yeah, I feel like I vaguely remember having that happen a couple times in my life. It's something that like get up and like shower to go to school or something, but then I wa- I wake up and, and I'm like, oh wait, I really have to shower now. And at the start of that, if you had remembered waking up from a dream that had from a sleep that had dreams in it at the beginning of that dream, yeah, you know the one of waking. So like. It is something that can happen. I mean, I, I I can't remember the last time it ever happened to me, but it is something that that gets used in pop culture quite often. Like, right? Because I think at some point they invented the idea of like, let's but trick the love... audience with a dream, and then yeah, people got so used to that, and it's like, what about a a double dream? Like, yeah. <laughs> they're still dreaming. Yeah, <laughs> but this is like the extreme version. They of wake that. up in bed again with someone else. But what about? I love this whole thing, though, with the dream within a dream, like how much power they continue to have. They have like a lot of control over the situations the deeper they go. I just feel like, how do you control this thing where you go like to the second level and then you have that technology in the dream to hook everybody up again and go to the next level? Well, I think part... I think I guess what we're supposed to take from this experimental military technology that kind of introduced the idea of shared dreaming, um, I think part of the idea is that if you enter this thing, like, you know, they strap into that machine and they go, like, instantly to sleep. Right. I think it's, like, that's part of whatever the technology is. Yeah. Because they say that they created the technology for soldiers to, like, be able to, like, kill people, basically. Yeah. Okay. In their sleep. And that way they get used to doing it or whatever. So, like... And they could get, like, stabbed and stuff, and it wouldn't really actually yeah. do the damage to them. Right. So, it's kind of almost like a video game, but, like, a virtual reality video game or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the lucidity of these dreams is something that people have always kind of questioned, because it's kind of like, that's not really how dreams work, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that, like, if you're going to take that leap, yeah, I so agree. to speak... I, yeah, I know. Which they I'm not here to nitpick the movie, but... Are you, aren't you? Well, I probably am. Okay, so at about 16 minutes into the film, once off of the train, uh, Cobb spins a top for the first time in the film. Uh, it's the same top that we saw at the very beginning of the film that I'll the old it. man Sato seemed to recognize. It eventually tips over, and later we'll kind of find out more about this, but this basically reveals to him that he is no longer in a dream. The top is Cobb's, what we find out is called totem. Right. Which is basically like an object that a dreamer has to like make sure they're no longer dreaming. Yeah, I would love to see like, we we only see like a max of three different totems, really. Yeah. Um, I would love to see what else people use for this. People have like a, the whole idea of the totem is such a big part of this film. Obviously, if you've seen it, you understand why with the last shot of the movie and everything. Um, and so much is talked about and debated about these totems. And, you know, I don't want to go down every single avenue of that right now because more a lot of that hasn't been revealed yet where we're at in the movie. But it's just kind of this... It's almost like this perfect invention by Nolan here to always have this kind of trick in the plot where it makes the viewer think one thing, but at the same time, 
everything you know about it might be wrong anyway. So right. it doesn't, that's how yeah. almost the entire movie is. It's almost like everything we learn and know ends up kind of being debatable by the end anyway. But the totem is like kind of the symbol of that. And then obviously the choice to end the film on. It's supposed to be that thing that answers the question, not just for the characters in the movie, but also for the audience where it's like, wait, how do we know we can believe that this is really happening? And then at a certain point in the movie, you basically lose that uh, basis that grounds to stand on. Yeah. So we get a quick phone conversation with his kids um, this kind of reveals more of Cobb's backstory. Um, one of the kids asks about mommy, and he says, "Mommy's not here anymore. We've been over this." Now, does this conversation feel real to you? No, nothing. That's kind of the crazy thing about this movie is like almost nothing at any point quite feels right. Right. There's always some weirdness to everything because it's like, where is he? Yeah. What? Who? How do the kids have this phone number? I know. Nothing feels normal at any point. Like, it's so strange. His whole backstory, too, of what we're supposed to believe, I don't know. I guess it's supposed to be one of those things where it's like, he's a criminal, he's a wanted man uh, for some crime, he fled the country. But it's like, he's able to call his kids. I guess it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, yes, if he tried to land in America, he'd be caught at customs and taken in for being on some list but they're also not like it's not like a massive manhunt or anything to the the fbi is not putting any resources into trying to catch him right there's a lot that never quite adds up and i mean that just kind of fuels the fire for like various theories and you can kind of always take a certain position and then run with it and then use various things that don't seem right as evidence to support whatever your theory may be and I do think, you know, once we kind of get to, like, some of our overall thoughts at, like, the end of all of this, we can kind of reference some of these things. But for now, let's just kind of go with what we see. So, basically, Cobb and Arthur are attempting to flee Tokyo via helicopter from the rooftop of their hotel. I guess this is after their whole uh, mission didn't really work. Right. And but, they're kind of openly talking about how... The company that hired them is now going to be after them to try to kill them. Pretty yeah, quick turnaround. Basically, yeah. Well, what they're involved with, I guess, is so illegal that these giant corporations can't risk, like, you know, loose ends for these kind of things. But then it's almost like, well, wait, wouldn't they have just killed them if it did work, too? Which, at that point, it's like, why even take the job? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There is, like, a... Um, like an animated short that's like a prequel. Oh, okay. On the Blu-ray. I will say all the stuff with COBOL engineering does not feel real to me. Well, it plays into some of the big theories that that Saito set the whole thing up in the first place True. or that all of these missions aren't real and there's like a secret mission the whole time that yes, you have to kind of figure out and all that kind of stuff. But Okay, so they're surprised to find Saito waiting for them. Uh, it seems Nash has sold them out. He's like, Saito's waiting in the helicopter. And yeah. Saito reveals that he wants them for a seemingly impossible job, Inception, which is planning an idea in a person's subconscious that wasn't previously there. Saito wants to break up the energy conglomerate of his dying competitor, Maurice Fisher, 
by having Cobb infiltrate the dreams of Fisher's son and heir, Robert, and convincing him to dissolve his father's company. In return for this, Saito promises to use his power and influence to clear Cobb of a murder charge, allowing Cobb to return home to their children, to his children. I mean, that's kind of a lot to process right there, but I mean, this <laughs> yeah. this can't be like a four-hour episode. So we're kind of... So Arthur's, you know, resistant to this, but Cobb... Arthur really doesn't want to get involved done. in this mission at all. He's right. kind of like, at every chance to get out of the conversation, he's like, can we just not do this? And Saito's even kind of willing to just let them go. Right. And Arthur's like, yeah, well, we should just go then. Yeah, but are they being genuine or are they playing a part? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, you do wonder because, like, uh, at various points, like, if if there is some overall conspiracy here of what is really happening, it's like, well, which characters are in on it and which aren't, and who's is you know, would this make sense if this character, like Arthur, is pushing against doing it at all? Because what if Cobb actually listened to him, or does, or is everyone so confident that Cobb would never listen? You know it what is I mean? interesting. I would love to know a little bit more backstory between the Cobb and Arthur characters because are their whole partnership like how long they've been working together? Uh, Arthur seemingly could be like, "No, I'm not doing this." But once Cobb is in, he's in. Yeah, I mean, we understand that um, because of. Cobb's circumstances and him being kind of on the run that he's now gotten involved in this very illegal uh, practice of stealing information through dreams. But why is Arthur doing this? Just Who the is money, Arthur? I guess. Yeah. Arthur, while portrayed as kind of like the pure character, it, when you really think about it, he must be just a straight up criminal because he right. doesn't really yeah. have an excuse for why he's doing this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Unless, unless, of course, there is a previous friendship, but they never really allude to that. Right. I mean, we, they don't really allude to much other than like he did know Cobb's wife, which he but reveals. Did he? Well, yeah, I guess he does. He say reveals it. Yeah, yeah, that he, to Ariad, yeah, 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 or whatever. So maybe okay, maybe the, he they were people that worked together before, but they never, yeah. you know, they never really explicitly explain it. But so Arthur doesn't want to do it, but Cobb says it can be done, and now this promise he kind of just takes Saito's word for it like hey I can get this murder charge cleared which I mean can we talk about that promise uh, I know how does that make a, any sense right it's insane one phone call <laughs> well I do think like it it's not really clearly addressed but I do feel like Saito leads big with this whole kind of promise of I can get you clear of this or whatever but by the end of the movie, I really feel like the promise was just like, I can get you through customs at the airport. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, could, I said I could get you into America once uh, you're there. I mean, you're on well, your yeah, own. Yeah, because I mean, uh, later Cobb will say things like, fix these charges and all this right. stuff. And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. But um, Saito says... So Although the I will say in The Godfather Part 1, Michael Corleone leaves the country for like a year and then he's fine. And he killed a cop. <laughs> Well, yeah, but that when is that taking place? Like the 20s <laughs> right, or something? Yeah. <laughs> it was a little different. Uh, no databases. So Saito says, so do you want to take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret waiting to die alone? Which is dialogue that is rem like basically kind of mirrors some of the things they were saying to each other at the very beginning of the film when Saito yeah. is old. And then will kind of reoccur throughout. Right. And will kind of be... <laughs> 
open to interpretation. Let's it's, say they kind of it kind of fits in with some of the wild theories that get thrown around. I I do feel like the relationship between Cobb and Saito is super weird because it almost feels like as the movie goes on, there is some weird closeness there, even though really like. I don't know. It just seems like Cobb seems very invested in Saito. And obviously we know that he needs him to wake up so that it can get off the plane. Yes. But I I don't know. It just feels like as the movie goes on, there's this like tie between the two characters, even though it's all based on Saito feels like he needs these guys to complete his mission. I, I don't know. I just think they feel there's like a bizarre dynamic there. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to like give away quite yet what i think about that but there's a there is definitely some weird connections especially with this bit of dialogue that right says here that connects through the film and and kind of brings in even more than just Cobb and saito eventually but so at this point they're gonna do it so they got to assemble a team uh first stop is paris Cobb goes to see professor miles played by michael kane who oddly enough gets like really high billing in this movie he's in it for a total of three minutes (laughs) it's very strange wow i would have thought it was a little bit more than that even but it's kind of michael kane just a staple in the christopher nolan uh, but i do movie franchise there, there is some importance to the character for a couple of reasons first of all it seems as if miles is Cobb's father in law yeah i guess he's not really questioning whether or not dom killed maul at this point, they still haven't really like fully explained what Cobb's situation even True. really is. We just kind of you kind of have to put some stuff together as a viewer and be like, it seems like Maul was his wife, and it seems like Maul is dead. He's we're referring to like these kind of charges. He can't go back to America. He can't see his children. Some things something that I, happened. I can list some things that don't make sense to me. At Parts, it seems like Michael Caine takes care of the kids, but they're in America and he's in Paris. Right. Uh, and it's When like, they call him in that place that he's in, does Michael Caine get on the phone or not? No, because he's talking about sending some gifts with Grandpa. And oh, he gives that's them right. The, he, yeah. yeah, he when he goes to see him in Paris. But yeah, it, it's kind of bizarre because it's like, well, if Michael Caine is going to paris from america why wouldn't he ever bring the kids if right Cobb is able to make it into paris at some point i don't know Be- this all kind of fits in with some of the other weird theories that we can get into later but okay so basically Cobb wants a top student of miles's to be his new architect to replace nash because nash sold them out with saito nash is out miles says that he this does is have some somebody fucking internship program yeah, Miles says that he does have somebody and that they're even better than Cobb at being an architect because basically, as we'll find out, Cobb can't be the architect because he's afraid of his subconscious knowing the details of these dreams and, and stuff. And they basically explain this to us that real-life architects who designed buildings uh, were kind of early on selected as the people to go into these dream worlds and design the places where like the soldiers would fight or whatever. Yeah. But the most interesting part about this interaction between Cobb and miles is when miles pleads with Cobb 
to come back to reality. Right. It always stands out. It's a very... Because it feels like an aside. It feels like they're having the conversation that they were actually having. And then it's like Michael Caine is stopping, switching gears, and says, come back to reality. Yeah, and I mean, this is... I think the important thing with Inception is, you know, multiple viewings kind of reveal more and more of these kind of things to pick up on. Um, I will say, like, the first time I saw it in the theater, I was blown away and loved it, but I felt like I had no fucking clue. Oh, yeah. And it was like, I definitely went back and saw it again, and it was just like, I I was still, like, blown away the second time. And it was like, you start to pick up on more and more things, and then it's like... You know, you get, get the, more confused at the same time. Yeah, you get the Blu-ray, and then you're like trying to piece everything together, and it's like you think you have like a good sense of it, and then you'll watch it, and then you'll be like, "What? What is this part?" Like you forgot about something. For me, a lot of times it was that opening scene. I'm like, "What does this connect to again?" Oh yeah, I always forget that they like come back to it, but it's like I'm always like, "What the fuck?" Well, I do feel like. Uh, and we'll certainly get to this, but by the time that Dom reveals the big thing that he reveals at the end, like towards the end of the movie, I always feel like it's a little bit uh, less impactful than it should be just because you've gone through so much by the time you get to that point. Yeah. Well, but then when you, it's kind of like, and then you sit back and think about it and you're like, geez, wow, fuck. But just like any other Christopher Nolan movie, it's like you can kind of start to turn it in on itself and be like, well, what really was happening? Because there's the surface level interpretation and then everybody always wants to dig deeper. And this movie, probably more so than any of his other films, is just so easy to like go down the rabbit hole of anything you want. And oh, yeah. you can make all these different cases for but why then this is happening. Every rabbit hole you go down, I do feel like you eventually hit a wall. And then you're like, oh, yeah. Let but, me go back the other way. But n- but not a wall that's like <laughs> a flexible wall. Yeah, because the whole thing it's like that's a like, membrane. The whole movie is like so flexible because uh, at one point, and we're like jumping ahead a little bit, but at one point, you know, a character says like, hey, you know, Cobb's doing this. Didn't he say not to do this? And the other one's just like, yeah, you'll find out that he says i see you're that he does all that, the things he says not to do right he spends a lot of time breaking his own rules yeah so it's like they set up these rules and then it's like everything kind of seems flexible and it's like nothing is quite permanent so miles introduces Cobb to ariande ariadne i i, I, I don't know yeah ellen page right juno if you will <laughs> and she seems surprisingly okay with getting mixed up with, with criminals uh, something not exactly legal (laughs) she's like yeah okay yeah i mean i'd be interested to know what michael Caine kind of prepped her with it's clearly not much because they have to tell her everything he's just like i want you to meet somebody yeah i mean i guess the basic idea is like oh it's leonardo DiCaprio. okay i'm an architecture student right but she would she would be aware of this technology because i guess we're, we're kind of like coming to terms with the idea that like this is something that exists most people aren't experiencing it, but and it can also be used for nefarious purposes, like what Cobb has been up to since. How many the of death those of Maul, like but, little box things with the tubes exist? Do you think? I don't know, but maybe 
You see, because you kind of see like different things online. It's like people are like Ariadne is a architecture student or whatever, but it, it, kind of almost like separate from anything to do with dreams. But at the same time, it's like, well, before Maul's death, you know, which we'll find out later, like Cobb clearly had experience with this stuff and was oh, yeah. doing experiments. And so it's like, I don't know, maybe... Because it seemed like he was a student of Miles's at some point or something like that. And it's kind of like, well, maybe Ariadne is somewhat familiar with this, but she seems like she doesn't know anything, really. Uh, right. So she asks I, a lot of questions. I don't know. And you pointed out uh, when we were talking about it the other day, this brief sequence where she's kind of interacting with both Arthur and Cobb, and they're basically explaining everything to us. Yeah, well... So basically, she agrees to jump on board, and then we get some of some of the film's more iconic moments. Those dream sequences with Cobb and Ariadne, where they're kind of just sitting on a street in Paris, and she doesn't realize she's dreaming at first, and like the things start exploding. Right, and then like now, later, who's doing that? I well, guess... that's because the dream world is collapsing because okay. she's starting to realize that she's in a dream. Right. So then later on, when she's like you know, more prepped and on board and like she's experimenting with the dream space and like she's making things and changing things and whatnot. You get the, uh, the other, another iconic thing, which is like the street folding in on itself. Yep. Like on the horizon. And I mean, these things are kind of like, you know, here we are eight years later and they still are insanely impressive looking. Oh, the effects in this movie are incredible. Yeah. It's just like, I remember because you know, 2010 obviously was a time when I was going to the movies, like even more than I do now. Wow. Hard to believe seeing this trailer so many times. Oh yeah. And at first you don't know what to make of it, but it's just like those images would stick with you. You're just like, what is this? It, you know, it's like, this could either be like the biggest piece of shit ever or unbelievable. Yeah. But I mean, since it was Christopher Nolan, I was definitely on board from the beginning, but it's just like, I know I was just once again, thinking of that stretch of just like the dark night. Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, just like three incredible theater experiences for me. Yeah, I would agree with that. So yeah, we kind of get the, through the dream world and also at like this uh, base that they've set up in Paris, we kind of get Ariadne's crash course on (laughs) shared dreaming. What, What is all this real estate that they have? I don't know. The simultaneous creation and perception that occurs in our our minds in a dream state is basically where they are able to insert themselves into that process. And I don't know, they kind of try to explain all of this in like five minutes. It's, it's kind of crazy. Arthur is there kind of to give like the, you know, five minutes in the real world gives you an hour in the dream world. And, you know, then Cobb in the dream is explaining what projections are. And that's basically all the people that populate the dream. Christopher Nolan's whole thing with time seemingly always playing a part in his movies. But there's also like the heist film element of it too, where, you know, we got that whole idea of like synchronizing watches. Well, it's like they're doing that amongst several dream levels in different parts in time once once we get to like the main mission right and so we kind of get the explanation here that the dreamer builds the world and then the subject populates it and as i've kind of put in my notes here a big question mark of like the whole creation process which we've kind of already yeah, talked I, about i don't not know really if being I get clear this. on how that all works <laughs> so the dreamer builds the world so 
Is the architect supposed to be the dreamer? <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. Because like I said... Populates it with what? For this giant Inception mission that is so important that they're going on, Ariane originally is not going to go with them in the dream. Yeah, I don't Yet get that. Yet she's the architect, so I don't necessarily get it. But right. Whatever. I will say... The subject populates it. Does that just mean like the projections are of the subjects? Yeah. And... Whatever is going on, like their idea of if like a specific person is in it, it would be their idea of that person. Okay, right. Whatever they know is what their projections know. In other words, if I had a dream and you were in it and in real life you knew something, some detail about something and I didn't know that you knew it. You in my dream, you wouldn't know it, right? Because if you were the projection, now if this was the shared dream world and it was you, then it would just be you. But if it's a projection, then it only knows what I know, or that I know that you know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like either way, and that is that seems like kind of what a, a loser an inane, that would be in your dream. <laughs> that seems like kind of an inane detail, but it kind of is important when you start factoring it. Mall crashing the party at all? <laughs> yeah, seriously. You know. I will say, you know, I have like. 28 pages of notes for this stupid movie but i was like should we just spend 40 minutes talking about how marion cotard is like the most beautiful woman on the planet well it's always a good conversation just, starter for us i wasn't i knew who she was because i watched the oscars every year and i was familiar with her for winning uh best actress from a couple of years prior but i mean i i didn't really have like a big familiarity with her oh i guess maybe this was my first interaction with her too and I was just like, good. Interaction. I was like, what's <laughs> up, Marion? <laughs> MC. Saw her on screen. Same initials. Looking good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you do often talk to the television well, as if I mean, it talks come on. back. <laughs> yeah. It's like, good Lord. <laughs> but uh, I will also say that uh, Ellen Page looks really cute in this movie, too. She does. Just uh, thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah. You know, throughout this like uh, crash course, we kind of... You know, Cobb tells Ariane, never recreate places from your own memory. Always create new places. Um, using real places is the easiest way to lose grasp on what's real and what's a dream. And kind of the panicked way that he tells her this is like, you're kind of like, huh. Yeah. This <laughs> Clearly, doesn't Cobb, sound great. Cobb has like some experiences with losing yeah. track of what's real and not real. And it all makes sense because it's like in this loose like this lucid way that they're dreaming with like this new technology once the world seems real and in that first scene in the oh, ca- right. outdoor cafe ariane doesn't know that she's dreaming. once he like explains how much time he spent in like the dream world you you are like how could he be like a normal person yeah it just seems like it would completely fuck your mind up yeah i definitely think like that is something to consider at all times. Right. Um, and this is also when Ariane first encounters Maul. The lovely Maul. She just stabs her with a big <laughs> knife on the street. And it's kind of like this first time. That's some subconscious you got on you, Cobb. <laughs> yeah, Ariane just, from that point forward, is riding Cobb's shit about yeah. his, Maul, his Maul bullshit. She's just like, you got to tell Arthur. Yeah, the you got this the team monster living in your dream world. <laughs> it's like, you know what? Shut up. Mind your own business. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to bring you in on this. Now, is she going to get like a big cut of this? Is money ever mentioned? They do mention it later. They do mention it whenever uh, Cobb is saying to Miles, like, you should let 
you know, the student make up their own mind, you know, and not decide for them. And Miles is like the money or whatever. And he's like, not just the money. But then like later they're talking about some secret that's withheld by another member of the team. And he's like, and Arthur's like, what did he promise you half his share? And he's like, no. oh, that's <laughs> right. Like, no, his the whole, whole share. share. So at 34 minutes now, this is when we get the second successful top spinning for Cobb. So according to the movie's own rules and what we understand as an audience, he has successfully spun the top now a second time. Well, spun it and it like comes it crashing topples. down. Right. Yeah. The whole idea is your totem will act unreal or depend depending on what your totem is, it'll act differently in the dream world than it will in the real world. It is kind of curious to note that everybody else's totem that we're aware of is messed up in the real world. Yeah. Normal. In I don't the dream even, We world. don't really see anybody else actually. Te- I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. His is a loaded die or whatever. So technically, he could throw it, and I guess we could see what would happen. But he explains it that only he knows the unique weight of it. Yeah, I think the idea is that Arthur's is the loaded die that in reality is messed up and will you know go a certain way. Whereas, right. but in the dream, will act normal. And then Ariane's ends up being that chess piece, which in the real world is will be will tip over a certain way, but in I the guess, dream world, yeah. will act normal. It's kind and of then, weird because when they're showing her with it, she's just like tipping it over. <laughs> You're like, well, what is that? Yeah, I do? don't know. I, but I think like Eames's, who we haven't met. Oh, yet, do we see his? People were speculating that his is the misspelled poker chip that in the dream world it'll be spelled correctly but like the opposite basically the whole point was the opposite is true for when do you see that i don't remember that well there's that like reference to the misspelled poker chip when we first meet him but like we don't know i don't know i i i I would say it's inconclusive that that is actually his totem but this is what people were saying gotcha okay and i can buy it i just cobbs is the only one that acts unreal in the dream and acts real in real life, whereas everyone else's is the reverse because they mess something up and then right. it acts normal in the dream. I don't know. Now, when he's explaining... Oh, I guess it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt that explains the totems, right? Yeah. Like, only you can know what makes it unique. Like, you can't let anyone else touch it and then learn it because then they could project that knowledge. Because that's what I was talking about right. with, like, your projections. Like, you don't want... Because basically all a total... This is also what's interesting about this movie that I think people forget is that if you always know what makes your totem unique, you can't use it to determine if you're dreaming. You can only use it to determine if someone else is dreaming. Right. Because That's you true. know yeah. what's weird about the totem. And I, and I think people kind of often overlook that when it comes to Cobb and his whole quest throughout this film is basically... Well, we'll get to it. Okay. Let's not go down that road right now. So the second stop after Paris is uh, Mbasa, which is, I guess, in like Kenya. And um, it is weird. This crew quite spread out. Yeah. They make it all over the globe. Yeah, they filmed this movie all over the fucking planet, really. And they track down Eames, played by Tom Hardy, who's basically like a con man, identity I will forger, say, thief. I mean, when this movie came out, I had not seen Joseph Gordon-Levitt in a while. And Tom Hardy, I didn't really know his work at all at the time. And it's like, th- these are, go on to be two of the bigger actors over the next several years following this movie. Yeah, this definitely was like a springboard for some people. So they need 
Eames for his ability to be an identity forger, uh, more so than the thief aspect. But you know, as an audience, we're not really clued in on what he's going to be doing. At what this he point. even does. Uh, but Eames takes Cobb to Yusef, who's like a chemist. Um, he can- after a ridiculous chase scene. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Okay. So uh, a chemist who will be able to concoct a powerful sedative for a stable dream within a dream strategy. So this is where we kind of learn the idea, at least like a partial bit of like the explanation of this, how, how how this all will work. Like you can't, if, if like they're going to go after this Robert Fisher to get into his dreams, to convince him to break up his father's empire, it's not like they can just in the real world like run up to him and tackle him. And hook this machine up to him, right? You know what I mean. There has to be some. <laughs> yeah. There has to that be, would be some fun, <laughs> sedative involved and all this kind of thing. And basically, the whole part of the idea here is, and this kind of speaks to what you were talking about as far as like your level of control. Like the deeper you go down, I guess like the sedative is what is supposed to help this special sedative that Yusuf yeah. concocts. So they needed a special chemist. But yeah, during this Mombasa sequence, Cobb ends up being pursued by Kobol Energy henchmen throughout the streets. Now, of all the sequences in the movie, there's there's two that I don't love, and this is one of them. I, and I understand that maybe this is the point where it's like we never know if someone's dreaming or not, and this whole chase thing kind of feels like projections coming after or whatever, but I just feel like it's super... Not great the way that it all works. They go on this kind of ridiculous chase sequence that ends with Saito like picking them up. And it's all <laughs> yeah. kind of based on this idea that like Cobol Engineering is sending these like armed people to go hunt down Cobb, Cobb and just murder him, I guess. Yeah. But it feels a little out there. Yeah. Well, the, the weirdest part, like, I don't know. I guess like the. It just depends. It's like there's a certain amount of suspension of disbelief, you know, just in general with this movie. So it kind of is like if you're able to buy into all this dream stuff, I guess you're able to buy that that's so important that this company that hired him and he failed, they need to kill him now. There isn't a whole lot of explanation given. But the weird part to me is definitely um, Saito just arriving out of nowhere. But, yeah, I mean, obviously these anonymous henchmen kind of – chasing him down through the streets of Mombasa feels very similar to the way that the projections will chase intruders in dreams, which we learned about, you know, with Ariane earlier. And then we'll see later throughout the film. It's, it's got, it feels very similar and it kind of becomes hard for even a viewer on the outside yes. to differentiate. So then you have to think as a, if you were like the character in it, if you were the person involved in it, it becomes very hard to differentiate between what is real and what is a dream. Uh, meanwhile, Arthur tutors Ariadne about architecture and architectural paradoxes. He tells her Maul is dead, and what you see in the dreams is just Cobb's projection of her. So, yeah, we've kind of already talked about that. Cobb tells Yusef, the chemist, that he wants to go three levels deep. Saito reveals he is now part of the team and coming on the mission, too, because he wants to ensure that everything runs smoothly. This is like his big thing his big investment he's gonna come so they take a little trip down to yusef's basement and there's all kind of, of a these... really 
not great scene going on down remi- here. It kind of reminded me of like the opium dens yes. of like from hell or something. It's right. just like all these people are like on cots in a basement in Mombasa. It's like what is happening in the world? And it's like what do these people do? They come here every day. Yeah. So basically they come for a couple hours every day and basically, you know, they end up getting like 40 hours a week in this dream world or whatever. And as this old man kind of says, he's like, the people come to be woken up. The dream has become their reality, which I don't get tons of people (laughs) point to as like the most pivotal line in the entire film. Right. And it is like a little obvious because it's just like, who is this guy? And he's just saying it like almost right to the camera. And it's like the dream has become the reality. And I do think that there is kind of this recurring idea of choosing your reality. Right. But what if after the credits, uh, Cobb just woke up in bed with Maul and that was like the real end? If she was nude, I would be completely down with that. Yeah, that would be a lot of people. I was reading through like old posts on Reddit and stuff, and a lot of people pointed out that 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 is what they thought the ending was going to be. Oh, really? And then all of a sudden, it it isn't it it isn't that, and they were kind of like you know shocked by. But people specifically were like thinking that they were going to wake up together at the end, and it would have all right. But um, so Cobb tests out this sedative in Yusef's basement. Um, we kind of get some flashes of Maul, a train. When he wakes up, it's kind of clear that he's like losing his grip on reality. And right here, we're only 10 minutes later from the last time, but at 44 minutes into the film, Cobb attempts to spin the top, but is unsuccessful due to being interrupted by Saito. Embarrassed. Yeah, kind of like shaken a little bit by this. It's almost like he doesn't want Saito to see that he needs like he's that desperate to like he can't tell what's real anymore right but it should be noted here and it didn't take it I didn't pick up on this until probably the second third time whatever through this movie it's like we don't see another attempt of the top being spun until the closing shot of the entire film so only 44 minutes in he gets interrupted so as far as we know, I mean, we we never get any real confirmation that he ever is woken up again. So what was the last time that he went to sleep, though? In Yusef's basement. Well, couldn't it have been before that? Because it's not like he spun it. Theoretically, yeah. But <laughs> Well, mean, that's the thing. Knows? I'm just saying you don't really know any of this stuff. I right. don't really know what that would even tell us. Well, there's only this... been 10 minutes since the last time he successfully... Well, <laughs> 10 minutes of film time yeah. since the last time he successfully did it, so I don't know. But it does become like... But then you're like, okay, so he went to meet Ames and Saito's with them, and then he's just asleep in this basement, and then what? He never wakes up, but... But we don't know. Okay. So, Ames will forge the identity of Peter Browning. Tom Berenger. Played by Tom Berenger, which is kind of weird because it's kind of like how uh, Matthew Modine is just like randomly in the dark. I know. I do feel like uh, Nolan just loves to throw in for like the eighth build actor. Just like Like someone from the past. Yeah. From like the 80s. Yeah. Um, Which is a fun move. Peter Browning is the right hand man of Maurice Fisher. Uh, He's kind of like the second in command. He's Robert Fisher's godfather. So basically what we learn is that uh, Eames will be able to replicate Browning's physical appearance and voice in in a dream so that Robert will think that it's actually Browning, 
but the, you know the process with which he's able to do this kind of like really archi- unexplained yeah the architect thing is kind of also not clear and frankly at this point in the movie not we don't important. need it yeah <laughs> so it's like why not throw like shape-shifting or whatever you know like throw <laughs> something else onto the mix it's like we're in at this point but somehow to me like this kind of makes sense when you think about how dreams work I guess and what so. they feel like you know what i mean like do you ever have that thing where you're dreaming and it's like <laughs> i feel like i get this a lot where it's like somebody is in your dream and you know it's this person but they don't look like that person or something like that or somebody will all of a sudden be somebody different. Yeah, I guess I kind of know what that's like. I, I don't know. I dream every night, and it is like a fucking curse. You dream every night? Yeah, I hate it. I almost never dream. When I do dream, it's like way too intense for me. <laughs> but I, I'm basically one, one of these people that goes to the fucking Yusef's den. Like, I, I can't dream anymore. I need to fucking go there to be woken up or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think it is kind of interesting that... Cobb fits that description of those people. Right. He can only dream by doing this dream sharing stuff. Oh yeah. So basically, when he's laying his head down at night to actually go to sleep, if you need sleep, I don't really know how this all works. But yeah. If he still needs regular sleep, he's not actually dreaming unless he's part of this. You know, he's hooked up to one of these things. But basically, uh, Eames will impersonate Browning and suggest ideas to Robert in the first level of the dream. In deeper dreams. Robert's projection of Browning should fall in line with the suggestions that Eames has already provided. So basically, if you set something up in the first level of the dream, then hopefully the projections in the further levels will carry on that idea. So basically, it will feel like to Robert that he's giving himself the idea if they can go down far enough. You know what I mean? So it can't just be browning suggesting something in one level of the dream and then that's going to work for inception they have to like keep going deeper to make sure that the idea feels organic right we kind of got that whole speech from arthur on the helicopter way back when with saito when he's like when i say if i say elephant or don't think of elephants what are you thinking about and he's like elephants he's like yeah but you know that i told you to do it right so it's not like you an original idea and it, so. it takes kind of all of the characters to explain this because Ames has a little bit about this too, because he's been on a mission attempting this before. Has he? Yeah. He says that they tried to do it, but the idea didn't take. Oh yeah. 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 It seemed like Arthur was the only one that was like completely. No. Can't a do non-believer. It. Right. <laughs> Everyone else is kind of like, yeah, I think it probably could work. So then they go to like a brainstorming session back in Paris, I guess. Um, and it seems like the crew casually slips back and forth between a dream world and reality every now and then, I guess, to give themselves more time. And it's kind of an ingenious thing that they don't really harp on. But it's like if you need more time to do something, if you're able to like go into a dream where you have control of yourself and, you know, you're it's not just like watching a movie like most dreams oh, tend right. to be. But like it's a lucid dream where you're like controlling things. It's like... Why wouldn't you just like slip in for five minutes and then you get an hour? So it's yeah, like no, it's it, great. It, it works perfectly if you need more time to plan something, which I guess is what's happening here. Ariane creates her own totem, which we kind of talked about already. It's like that uh, pawn from like a chess set. 
Um, and she starts designing the levels of the dream, and then Cobb starts going off on his own <laughs> solo dreams, semi-secretly. Sometimes Yusef is in the mix. I don't yeah. know, like, what Putting him Cobb under is for even some doing. Reason. Yeah. But it's, like, clear that Maul is kind of hanging over everything. So this is whenever they kind of break down this idea of, like, this multi-level dreaming going three levels deep. Um, they say that... <clears throat> On the first level of the dream, based off of like a 10-hour a flight, is basically how they're trying to set this all up. That they'll be able to get one week in the first level of the dream, six months in the second level of the dream, ten years in the third level of the dream. Now, obviously, none of this plays out like that. I mean, it all kind of seems like... <laughs> Until oh, the very right. end yeah. when the fucking van is going off the side of the bridge. It all seems like it's all happening in the same amount of time. Yeah. Like, there's no... I mean, the whole idea that they... I don't even know why they felt the need to say this. Wait, like, they think that in the first level of the dream, it's one week? Correct. Which, it seems like which it's is why one they, hour. Well, no, they do address it because they're right. like... When Eames is like, I'll just wait it out then because it's too much danger. Whenever oh, yeah, the yeah. whole thing gets revealed, he's like, no, you can't because these projections will break in and kill us by the time. Oh, right. By trying to wait out a week or whatever. That's how much the sedative will give them. That's not necessarily how much time they'll actually be in there. Oh, yeah. But when you think about what that means for time discrepancy, when you think about how long they're actually in any level, it's like, well, it seems like the time difference should feel like more from one to the other, but it kind of seems pretty synced up for a while. Right. Until eventually the whole Until thing. the end, yeah. But, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, I mean clearly you have to like kind of give it some... <laughs> Suspend some <laughs> level of yeah, I mean, disbelief. You can't, you can't like get stopwatches out. And <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> it'd be ridiculous. Although you did do that, and it's written down on the 27th piece of that paper. <laughs> so... Ariane comes across Cobb hooked up to a machine and sleeping on his own. She just kind of connects and joins in. She wake, she kind of you know wakes up in an elevator, passes an empty bedroom, which we'll later find out is Maul's childhood bedroom. Then comes to Maul and Cobb together, kind of I think in like their living room of what that last house that they own together, and that is yeah. like I mean I guess uh, Cobb has like constructed this in his dream world, this whole little elevator thing. Correct. Basically, he has set up a elevator Mall with shrine. different floors of no. It's more of all of his regrets, like all oh, yeah. of the moments that he can't quite come to terms with. Um, but like whenever that's er a fun elevator ride. Yeah. It seems like he's doing this a, to keep like when I say doing this, I mean like these solo dreams and kind of sneaking off and doing this is if he can't dream on his own, he's basically just doing this to himself to keep the memory of Maul alive. And he's almost like torturing himself. But I will say that when Ariane first comes across them sitting together or Maul and Cobb sitting together and, uh, they're looking at each other, but then uh, Maul turns and looks. Oh at the yeah, camera. that scared the it's shit out of me. Genuine scare, right? And, like you, I mean, Marion Katar, so beautiful, yet there is like a frightening, frightening <laughs> quality to her. You're kind of like intimidated. She immediately. seems like she could beat some ass. <laughs> <laughs> so Cobb, when he sees that Ariadne showed up, he's like, Cobb goes over to the elevator, and he's like, "What the fuck?" and he takes Ariane up well, to the I will beach. Say, 
quickly, uh, when I was reading about this, and I'm sure you read about this too, that originally Nolan's concept for this movie was that it was going to be more like a thriller, like a psychological thriller. And that scene with Marion Cotard doing that look, it has kind of that Kubrick feel. Yeah. Carry um, on. So they go up to the beach in this dream and malls with the kids and we never see the kids faces we've seen them pop up now in various dreams that Cobb's been in including the opening sequence on the shore of the subconscious you know the whole thing at the very very beginning of the film but we never see the kids faces Ariane realizes that they're not really dreams that they're memories and Cobb is basically breaking all of his own rules you know creating things from his own memory rather than creating new things he takes ariadne up to his last moments at home with his kids you know whenever i guess maul has died and he's fleeing the country and he has that last moment where the kids are in the yard and he wants them to he wants to see their faces but they don't turn around in time we learn that his kids names are philippa and james and i'm just like philippa you're left thinking Cobb's kids names are repug lol yeah <laughs> but then ariane while he's kind of <laughs> Cobb is kind of just waxing poetic there in his own fucking bullshit and ariane just runs back to the elevator oh yeah and she's like i gotta see what's in the basement because she knows that like based on the way the dreams work and the way that like you create like a certain jail or safe or secret place it's like whatever's in that basement is gonna be it's the gonna fucked be up real moment. dark and on the way down, she passes a train, and at this point, you're watching the movie, and you're like, fuck, these trains keep popping up. It's like, that must mean something. Yeah. And the the basement is basically like a hotel room, and it's all like, all the furniture's like knocked over, and there's like broken uh, wine glasses. And you're all like, kinds what the shit. hell happened here? Which really is never <laughs> revealed, right? Because, well, if this is from that last night. Maul did it. Okay. We see what it looked like from Cobb's perspective eventually yeah okay and it was fucked up when he got there so, so she, she did, did it that to make to it room. look like a, a fight happened oh oh that's right yeah Jesus Christ man <laughs> <laughs> well I'm always like why is she in the hotel room across the building like the adjacent yeah, dude, building dude, that I don't know so that's what I was thinking of it's like if she's across like in the other building why would this room be fucked up I don't know so Maul is in there when Ariane shows up, and they kind of have this weird confrontation. And this is where we first hear Maul's riddle. You're waiting for a train, a train that will take you far away. You know where you hope this train will take you, but you don't know for sure. But it doesn't matter. How can it not matter where the train will take you? And you're like, Maul, that riddle stinks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not a great flow to that. So, but... Obviously, kind of like the leap of faith dialogue, this is something that kind of jumps out and kind of gets repeated from time to time throughout the film, and it obviously carries some significance. And so basically, Ariadne's like, fuck, bro, you got Maul in a prison of memories. This isn't healthy. This is going to fuck everything <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, this does seem fucked up. And so she's like, I got to go with you. I got to join this dream team <laughs> now because... Takes the rest of the te- convincing for the rest of the team. It seems like well, yeah, everyone else seems like they, they don't just know go what the with the flow. Yeah, they're just like yeah, whatever. <laughs> this only seems like the most insane thing that we anybody could ever get together and do. But, but yeah, sure, let's We're change just it along on the fly. For the ride. Right. 
So even like Saito, who you think would be like, I'm not paying for this bitch. <laughs> well, even <laughs> no, even if he would just be like, well, hey, what's what's the deal? Like, even if he isn't like against it, he'd at least want to be like, well, could you let me know what's happening? Right. But all of a sudden, it's time. You know, it's Cobb like does. I will say a- that when they wake up from the elevator thing, like the two of them, I'm like, that's a fucking awkward wake oh, yeah. up together. It's like so. so- a lot of to, weird shit going on yeah, in your mind, huh? A lot of problems going on in there. Um, so, I will say, and this maybe speaks to the whole thing that like Cobb is dreaming the whole time, but it's definitely a Cobb show at all times. Well, he yeah. calls all the shots. Right, but maybe he doesn't. So, right. <laughs> so uh, Maurice Fisher, play, played by the late uh, Pete Postal, Postal Thwaite, right? How do you say yeah, I don't know. Something like that. Uh, of the town fame. He dies. And so his body's going to be sent from Sydney to L.A. And Robert, his son, is going to accompany them on the trip. They do something to fuck with like their private jet. So they're going to fly commercial and in first class. And so Saito's already bought the airline. And they're going to have the first class department or section all to themselves this is going to be the perfect opportunity this is what they were waiting for they have to hurry get this all arranged but basically since the flight is ending in la Cobb will be arrested upon entering the country if saito doesn't do what he promised or is unable to so it's kind of like a big risk but obviously this whole idea of like why was maurice fisher in australia i don't even know yeah, I don't know. And if he's being like, buried in Los Angeles, why is he in Australia dying. when he's on his deathbed? That's where, like, I guess his office is, too, because that's where his deathbed is kind of, like, in his office, it seems. I mean, if it was just, like, we're kind of, like, pointing out all these weird things. But, and if it was just one of these things, you would just move right by it. It would just be like, well, whatever. Whatever the reason right. is, it doesn't matter. But it's like when you start adding up all of these weird things, you're kind of like, I don't really fully understand what's happening with this. And it sounds like we're talking about a flawed film, but what we're really doing is kind of laying the groundwork for some of the crazy or not so crazy theories True. that we'll, we'll get more into in part two. So if you enjoyed this, part two will be coming next week. Yes. Uh, maybe, you know should have said at the beginning it's too late now but maybe it will be more fun to listen to this all together as one long thing i don't know maybe i, I just don't know if our listeners are ready for like a four-hour episode but some might be so as always follow the show on twitter at greatest pod um thank you for all of your support please make sure you subscribe and continue to spread the word and we'll um, see you in uh part two yeah we got part two coming for you real soon and so uh Hopefully you like Inception. <laughs> yeah. We'll uh we'll see you next time. Alright, later. Avec leur tremolo, balayé pour toujours. Bien,
I had a dream last night that a hamburger was eating me. <laughs> <laughs>